Hi, this is Bishop Wall, and welcome back to part two of three episodes on Crozier Cast with our special guest, Dr. Helen Free. This week, we continue to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien and his influence that he's had on literature as well as on society and the church. And this week, we talk a little bit about the things that made him the man that he was. And so, enjoy this episode, and God bless. So I did my t- dissertation on uh, the title of it was Fate, Providence, and Free Will, Clashing Perspectives of World Order in Tolkien's Middle Earth, uh, because it's in that area that I think that we moderns continue to, to really struggle. You know, where do we have free will? And uh, if we do have free will, how, how can we use it? Um, or are we simply fated to do things according to the, the, the will of an other, you know, be it a God, be it circumstances, be it genetics at this point. And so we're very much entering into a, a neo-pagan time, um, which denies the, uh, the existence of free will um, and begins to uphold the, the power, the power of things over, over man. And of course, when that happens, man begins to to diminish and sure. become simply a, a, a cog in a wheel, an object to be used by the forces of, of nature and the forces of... Pawn in a game. Exactly, yeah. Um, and that's not very pleasant. You know, it's not very pleasant. And I think that adds to the despairing nature of, of the world even right now. Um, but Tolkien addresses that directly in the work that, in the work that he writes. And if you know his history and his biography, it makes it all the more amazing that that Middle Earth was ever created, given given Tolkien's own history. Because you know, his father died when he was a, a little boy, and he was raised by his mother. Um, he and his brother were raised by his mother, who had diabetes pretty severely, and she converted to the Roman Catholic faith. You know, thanks in very large part to the uh, Birmingham Oratory. In fact. Side note, I think it's a whole area of study, which I would love to do on, I think about called the, uh, we say faith of the fathers, but faith of our mothers, because Tolkien's mother uh, and, and the faith that, that she passed on to her sons uh, was, was absolutely integral to what happens with Tolkien. But there's a Newman connection there too, because of course, uh, soon to be Saint Cardinal John Henry Newman, uh, he founded the Birmingham Oratory. And so, I don't know enough about Newman's own theology to, to make this study, but perhaps someone listening can do it. And that is to see how the theology of Newman affected the Birmingham Oratory, which in turn affected Tolkien. Because uh, his mother, after she converted, she was, um, she was disowned by her family and had to raise the two boys completely on her own in, in a lot of poverty. But she gravitated to the Birmingham Oratory as a type of support for her as a single mom. And she then died of uh, untreated diabetes. Yeah. And Tolkien often referred to her as a, uh, as a martyr, um, a, a, a white martyr, is that right? Yeah. One yeah. who dies for the faith. Sure, yeah. Uh, and he said that 
his letters are very beautiful regarding his mother and the faith of his mother. Sometimes his later letters are rather are sorrowful, I think, in, in reflecting on his own children's loss of the faith, in that he, he says how much his mother suffered you know, for the faith. Um, but he was then raised by Father Morgan at the Birmingham uh, Oratory. So you already have a, a really sad, sort of a sad childhood um, of Tolkien in which bad things have happened to him um, that are not, are not of his making, out of his control. Um, but he went to a, a school there in Birmingham, formed ex four excellent friends. Uh, they called themselves the Immortal Four. And they would do rebellious things like, like sneak into the library and have tea and crumpets and write poetry or something like that. <laughs> as if kids the, only did that nowadays. Yeah, rebellious yeah. natures and encourage things. that. But uh, he then was drafted for World War One, And he was drafted, I think, as a second lieutenant. And it was the second lieutenants of the First World War in England that were absolutely mowed down. Um, so many of them died um, in, the, in the Great War. But two of Tolkien's closest friends also died in the war. I think they died on the exact same day, in fact, in the Battle of the, of the Somme, if I'm remembering rightly. Um, and it was really devastating for, uh, for Tolkien uh, with, the, with the death of two of the immortal four. Um, and uh, he came out of that war, he, he was taken from it early with what, they didn't really know what to diagnose it as, they, they call it trench fever. Uh, most likely it was post-traumatic stress disorder. Shell um, shock. Shell shock. Mm -hmm. They seem to change the name mm -hmm. with the war, but yeah, PTSD seems to be the, the, the term that we're used now. Yeah, because there was nothing wrong with him. He wasn't shot, he wasn't cut up, uh, but he was, um, he had fevers and chills and uh, like horrible nightmares and shakes and, and things like that. But um, so he he came out of there. He emerged from that war, like all of his contemporaries, you know, very much affected, very negatively affected. Um, but this is what I think is so fascinating about Tolkien. Um, unlike his contemporaries who came out of that war and suddenly this entire understanding that had that had fueled the late nineteenth century and early twentieth century, which is the idea of progressivism that. You man by his own works, we're progressing towards a utopia. And if we can just order our political systems right, um, order our church systems right, we will achieve this this ultimate utopia. So to mm -hmm. understand progressivism that develops um, throughout the 1800s and into the early 1900s, and it absolutely killed by World War One um, because suddenly this this whole uh, beautiful image of progressivism is shown to be. Just in shatters. Sure, just, we, we were doing right. everything correctly and right. We were on the right path. Yeah. How does this happen? How does this happen? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so it makes many of his contemporaries uh, shift to um, let's live for the day, uh, the carpe diem. Um, live for the moment, live for the day, because after this, there is nothing. And so England has very much a, oh, a, a turn to a, a more hedonistic culture, because if there is nothing else after this, if everything is all just going to, to hell, then you might as well enjoy the, the little pleasures of, of one's life for as long as one can. Um, but that's, that's some of the literature that, that emerges in the 1920s, post-World post War I. But what is Tolkien doing? Um, but he is, he's, he's already crafting and building this amazing world, which is, of course, the Silmarillion, um, but he writes, for instance, his great creation myth, 
which I hope you've read, the Inalindala. I haven't. You haven't? I haven't. Oh, I know. Your fault. I know. Fault. I'm going to have to. It is beautiful. It is so beautiful. It's the very first chapter of the Silmarillion, which was, as he said, the, the work that was closest to his heart. And it's in the Silmarillion that you've got this entire world that's developed that the Lord of the Rings is part of, but just sort of pulls things out of. And that's it's, it's the reason why the Lord of the Rings has such a depth of a feel to it, a history to it. Uh, you always think, well, that, wow, there's a story that's that's behind this that's sort of referenced. So I, I do things everywhere. out of order. I, I watch the movies before I read the books, and so I, I read the books before I should read these books. And <laughs> have you read The Hobbit? I have read The Hobbit. Okay, I have read The I love The Hobbit because he's on a journey. I've been on the Camino uh, four times, going to the next uh, 2020 for the fifth time, and I always um, I always see myself as Bilbo on the on the. Uh, on the, the on the on the uh, on his journey, and uh, Archbishop Paul Coakley and Bishop Jim Conley, and we we talk about that as we we go along the way. Well, make sure you bring your, your pocket handkerchief. Like, I, like I will. Remember right. his pocket handkerchief. Well, if for this summer you could have as your assigned reading the Einolindala. It's <laughs> it's not long. It's about four or five pages, um, but it's this amazing story in which the god of Middle Earth, Iluvatar. It, it, he creates the world, and he creates the world with his angels, who are called the Valar. Um, and he, he, Tolkien presents it in terms of a beautiful symphony, and that uh, Iluvatar gives to the Valar powers of creation, and it's through song. And the harmony all begins in this incredible, beautiful, harmonious way, and, and life is coming from song. That's a very medieval uh, image that Tolkien is stealing from Boethius. Constellation of Philosophy. Yes. I did read you that. Got that. You got it. And I did read Beowulf and, yeah, and yeah. the others. I read those in college. Yeah. Well, what happens is the uh, the, the, the one Valar, who is Melkor, he decides to sing his own his own song. He doesn't want to follow the, the director, who's, who is a Lubitar. He wants to sing his own strain of music. And so this one strain begins, which is out of harmony with all the others, with all the others. And there, there begins to be a clash, and the other singers are confused, and they begin to, to, to join him to try to stay in harmony, and, and everything begins to be in confusion. And Louvatar stops the music because of the hand. He stops the music, and everything comes to this crashing halt. You can imagine like, an orchestra or something like that. And then he, he says, let's try again. You know, and, and so they, they try again, and again, Melkor mars the music and it happens three times uh but this is the source of of evil in the world is melkor because it's it's, it's his evil strain that uh that mars the the beautiful creation that Iluvatar has in his mind so this is the this is the image of the world that tolkien began to write actually from the trenches of world war one itself and i often try to put myself in the in the mind of you know, such a man, uh, you know, 20 years old, in the trenches of World War One, and you have shells going off and horrible things all around you. And he's praying. He's, his faith was very, very deep. And his trust in God, I think, must have been extremely, extremely deep. Uh, that, that in some sense, his imagination could turn not to all the horrors that were around him, but to see all the horrors that were around him as coming from the source of, of Melkor, you know, the, of an evil of an evil uh, element of creation that was so out of harmony with the intention of, of the god yeah. of Iluvatar. And of course, Tolkien never wanted to create a, uh, a world which wasn't in competition with reality, you know, with the one true god, the Christian god. 
Um, but he saw myth, and he very much saw his own world as the creation of a myth. He says in his letters that the great desire of himself and his, his high school friends, the two that died, the immortal four, they wanted to create a, a myth for England uh, that was exclusively England's own myth. And this was sort of the great task that they set off for, for themselves, and which Middle Earth is very much a product of, um, a creation of a, of a cultural myth that arises strictly from, uh, from England. But at the heart, then, of, of, of Tolkien's world is a providential god with a, a love for creation. Um, and, and that's what Tolkien himself then sees, comes out of his horrors of World War I, uh, and, and, and still clings to, and clings to his, his whole life, uh, even, even through World War II. Um, he, he comes back to uh, this, this fundamental view of, of providence. And I, I just find that very, very striking, uh, that, that you should have such a, I guess, such a man and such a creation, especially given what's happening with his peers in, in England. What's happening around him and all that. So, um, would you say in in his work, his his works, are, his work is very redemptive. Absolutely, yeah, it's very redemptive. It's very hopeful. You know, what's interesting is you're talking to Tolkien lovers, not of not of the movies, of the books. Is <laughs> often people say that they feel refreshed or or cleansed after they've read Tolkien, and and I and I agree with them. I feel the same way. At times in my life, when I when I've been just unsure of things, or I don't want to call it de depressed or despairing, it's not that, but things seem dark. You know, yes. I, I turn I turn back to Tolkien's work, and it it, it adds a I guess a uh, an infusion of of hope back into my imagination, um, and and I think that Tolkien. You know, Tolkien has that has that effect on people. His his story has that uh, effect on people. I said he didn't want to create a world that was in competition with with the real world, you know, with with the Christian uh, Christian with, theology. With Tolkien, you can't say, okay, this is this person in this world, and this is maybe mm -hmm. different from Lewis. Absolutely different from Lewis. Yeah, Lewis um, liked those types of uh, analogies. You know, Aslan is Jesus. Jesus, yeah. Um, and there's no way around was it. Was Tolkien was he critical that um, that uh, that Lewis included Santa Claus and uh, I'd heard that somewhere <laughs> that he includes Santa Claus in uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know, Lewis and Tolkien were excellent friends, and I'm doing an evening course you know, for John's uh, John's Institute on Tolkien and friendship at the at the Newman, at the Newman uh, Institute, Institute at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Mm -hmm. We're putting all of our plugs in, so Helen's going to be. Uh, teaching there this year, which we're really excited about. Yeah, so my course is uh, Tolkien, Friendship, and the Common Good. Uh, so friendship was was so integral to, to Tolkien as a person and as a man. It was his high school friendships, and then as an Oxford Don, his academic his academic friendships. Um, and uh, and they were men. I mean, it was it was men to men. It wasn't it wasn't really a, a man woman world. He had, sure. he had his lovely wife, whom he he, he loved and adored. Uh, but his his friends, for, for intellectual conversation, were with were with men. But he and Lewis were very good friends, uh, excellent friends. And uh, Lewis, in many ways, owes his own conversion to Christianity to Tolkien. They had this very famous midnight walk, in which they were talking about uh, mythology. And uh, Tolkien, in a wonderful essay, which is called On Fairy Stories, has a poem in there, which is called Mythopoeia. 
And in it, he talks about having uh, read this poem to a friend. The friend is, is Lewis. But in the, in the poem, he talks about, uh, and so Lewis quotes this as well, uh, lies breathe through silver. And that's, that was Lewis's view of, of Christianity, that Christianity was a myth. Um, but, it's, but myth are lies. Um, but Christianity is simply lies breathe through silver. And Tolkien in this Midnight Walk and his talk about Christianity and mythology and the great myths of the world said that, yes, Christianity is a myth, but it is the myth from which all other myths come. And that, yeah. and that is not a lie. That, that, that Lewis's great error was in calling mythology lies uh, because Tolkien saw that all the world mythologies shared a common thread because of the reality of Christ's incarnation. Um, and so if you could understand the Christian myth as true, then you no longer have this image of it being a lie through, breathe through silver. So anyways, um, Myth of Poeia was a very influential poem uh, on, on, Tol on, sorry, on Lewis's own conversion, in which Lewis himself was finally able to see that, yes, this, this isn't just a beautiful thing. This is, this is true. Uh, this is a true thing. Um, so he and Lewis were close friends, but he did not like he didn't like Lewis's um, fiction. I forget the the dismissive term he had, like love love tales of a fawn or something like that, regarding the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Sure, sure. He, had, he had a nasty little subtitle for it, which was like the Lion, the Witch, and the Ward the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the Frolickings of a Fawn. I, I forget what it was. <laughs> Mr. Tomness was right, right? Yeah, that the, yeah exactly. that's the, the but fawn. Lewis. Lewis, and I think that, that now that, pray God, they're both in heaven, we can meet again as, as good friends. Uh, Tolkien owed a, and the whole world owes a huge debt to C.S. Lewis because Tolkien was a perfectionist, and he, he worked and worked and worked on his, on his fictional creations without ever finishing them. And Lewis is the one who pushed him to actually finish something. And so it's only because of Lewis that he ever actually finished the Lord of the Rings. Um, the Silmarillion, he never finished. It was just you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of incredible works. But after he, after he died, well, when he first submitted it to, uh, to the publisher, Stanley and Unwin, um, after he had published The Hobbit, which was, I think, 1939, to, to a huge acclaim. People loved The Hobbit. And people wanted more, more of, of Hobbits. Uh, and so Tolkien was excited because when the publisher came and said, do you have anything more? He said, I sure do. And he took his manuscript, which he'd been working on since World War I. Uh, and everything was everywhere. He, was, uh, he wasn't really organized and he hated computers. He thought they were of the devil. Well, typewriters were the devil. So the computers didn't work. But um, he brought this stack of papers that was like a foot high, disorganized, plops it on the desk of uh, Stanley and Unwin. And... And the man said it was like looking at a telephone book of Elvish names. He said he couldn't, he said, people aren't going to read this. And Tolkien was so offended, he was so angry that he said, I'm never going to work with them again and they won't have any of my material. But it was C.S. Lewis that, first of all, urged him to think about how he could write a story of the Hobbits, you know, what happens, you know, where did the Shire come from? How is it, how is it a part of, of Middle Earth, of the Silmarillion? Um, where do the hobbits fit in with the, the various races that he creates in the Silmarillion? And so he, it was his, his intellectual conversation, first of all, with, with Lewis. And then he, he does. He begins to write. Uh, and it's Lewis who 
gets him to finish. And it's also Lewis, I think, who helps to get him not to be so so proud regarding the dismissal of, of the Silmarillion. Um, you think in their friendship, do you think that's uh, depicted a little in the, the, the trilogy? That's a great question. I've often wondered that. It was Lewis, one of the characters, is Tolkien one of the characters? Um, I think friendship absolutely is is depicted. Whether Lewis has a special place in there, it's a great question. Helps to form it, though, right? right? Yeah, he helps to yeah. form it. Yeah, and I think that's, I think in the movies we see a little bit of it, but when you read the books, you hear, I mean, you see you see virtue, which is, is just so beautiful in terms of the friendship that they have. Um, you know, Pip and Mary, um, Samwise Gamgee is the greatest friend of all time. And I think we, you know, you're able to see this. I wonder if that, that helped to form, I'm sure it did help to form the, the, the friendships, the real friendships that he had um, with people like Lewis. And who are the, the Inklings? Uh, is there, um, remember the whole group that was in there? Lewis, those are the two most famous it, of honest, all of them. I don't, I don't remember either. Yeah, I think if yeah. I it brought my notes and my thinking cap. And they go to the... I don't remember the, the, bird the bird and the baby. baby. Yeah. child. Yeah, the Eagle's <laughs> child. Yeah, that still is a still is a great image though of they being able to drink beer and smoke pipes and talk about literature and poetry and speak different languages and I've never been there, but I hear that there is a letter that's signed and that framed that thanks for allowing us to uh, drink, smoke and, and argue or fight, <laughs> or and they might even say fight. And uh, which is so great. I think they'd be a gas now because I think didn't England ban smoking in their pubs? Yeah, they would. <laughs> they wouldn't be able to do that no, now. No smoke rings. Yeah, there, yeah. When I went there, I wanted to sit outside and smoke a cigar, but I don't know if I would have been allowed to do that as well. Thank you for joining us on Crozier Cast, and I'm grateful to our special guest, Dr. Helen Free. Please join us next week for the third part of our series as we look at the life of J.R.R. Tolkien. And next week we'll go into, into in-depth a little more into some of the characters in the trilogy. Take care and God bless.